Welcome to Women in Academia podcast with Irena, where I will interview female researchers to understand the challenges that women in academia are facing today. Thank you for listening and enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm very happy today to have on the podcast Dr. Ruth Brookman. Ruth is my very dear friend. And um, Ruth, hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Irina. How are you? Good, thanks. Thank you for being my guest today. You're very welcome. Ruth, can you introduce yourself and tell me more about your current position? Certainly. So my name's Ruth, as you know. I um, am currently just, this is my third week into um, my job as an Associate Postdoctoral Research Fellow in Technology and Ageing at the um, Marx Institute for Brain Behaviour and Development. That's good. Can you tell me more about your background and what brought you to the research? I'm a mature mature age student, so I recently finished a combined PhD and master's in clinical psychology, which I started in my late 40s. So my main background is is very varied. It's like a long and interesting journey. So I've got a lot of uh, clinical experience in my background. I was initially trained as a speech pathologist and worked in a hospital setting before engaging in where I worked for most of my life, I think for about 15 years really, was in vocational rehabilitation. So in my first job at Westmead Hospital, I'd worked with um, children and with adults who were recovering from a brain injury um, or a stroke. And yeah, the majority of my career, I worked in vocational rehabilitation. So helping people with injuries and disabilities get work. And yeah, began retraining, I guess, in the area of psychology, which had always interested me from even as a teenager. um, I found that I worked well um, with people who had mental health issues and getting them back to work and yeah, got quite a lot of outcomes for people. And my employer sponsored me to go back to study as a mature age student by distance education. So that led me to do my honours and then have a really, had a really positive experience of um, research. And um, I was working at the time in a local court setting with criminal offenders and looking at obstacles, I guess, barriers to them, well, I guess, reasons for... um, for, for them being before the courts. And um, so I researched in that area and had a really positive experience. And I guess my honours supervisor was the first person to ask me if I'd ever thought of doing a PhD. And yeah, here I am. I've always been motivated to work with people. I love working with people and supporting people. I found through my honours experience um, that I really enjoyed research as well. So I came into postgraduate research um, wanting to be equipped to do both. So that's why I'm doing the combined degree, uh, the clinical master's and the PhD. So hopefully, so that my clinical experience informs my research and my research informs uh, the way I practice as a clinician. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's okay. Can you tell me what are the biggest challenges you have faced and obstacles you have to overcome on your journey? And if you had to start over, what would you do differently? Very good question. Probably the biggest challenge starting out was probably self-doubt. And and that thought at the back of my mind when I started my PhD that maybe I might be too old for this and um, maybe my brain doesn't work well enough to 
to be in this environment. And now that was particularly there when I started, but not as I continued on the journey, which was wonderful. Yeah, so I guess getting that experience that, yeah, that I'm not too old for this. <laughs> and my supervisor said to me, there, you're never too old to do a PhD. There's no age for doing a PhD. Yes, I really appreciated the opportunity after my children had grown to give this time to myself and to do something that I really wanted to do. I think the other obstacles along the way in doing the combined degree was just the, the intensity of the two programs, both mm -hmm. very, very demanding degrees. So there were a few times along the way where that became very intense and because some of the the demands of both degrees competed with each other at times in terms of deadlines for the PhD versus preparing for someone that I was seeing tomorrow who might have depression or mm -hmm. you know, something really serious going on with their life. In terms of other obstacles, I think they're really obstacles. I don't think I even want to call them obstacles because I think they're the kind of things like health issues, like my husband had a couple of health issues along the way and stuff that happens in life <laughs> has the potential to derail you. But I think when you think of them as a normal part of life, like we're human beings, being human is going to involve mm -hmm. being placed in a family, having children or having older family members that we're responsible for is going to mean that there's going to be life will happen. And I think if we see that and normalize that as part of life, then it doesn't need to de derail us. It's something that we pause, we take a deep breath, you know, mm -hmm. problem solve or do whatever we need to do, but we can keep going with the work. Yeah. In terms of, um, Anything that I would do differently, that's a really interesting thought. And for me, it, even though those two degrees together was quite intense and people would sometimes make comments <laughs> that I was a little bit mad <laughs> anyway to take that on, let alone to take it on with a family and things like that. I, I don't regret in any way doing those things together because for me, they're very much interlinked, as I said, that mm -hmm. desire... My, my motivation is in research is to be generating and operating in an area where the findings have benefit for people in the real world and vice versa. So I love doing research that involves people mm -hmm. and that has where the findings are translational and have the potential to impact, I guess, best care for people in my current position. I'm working in, and I didn't make that clear, but I, we might a bit later on, but working in the area of dementia. So, and looking at what assistive devices, technological devices might be helpful in meeting the needs of people with dementia and their carers as they cognitively and um, physically decline. So, you know, that really motivates me being involved in research that has the potential to impact the quality of people's lives, I guess. Yeah, no, I wouldn't change anything really. I'm very grateful for the experience and I'm grateful for all the opportunities of learning and for the people that I've met. And I worked hard and I don't regret doing that because I feel like I couldn't have done anything, worked harder or worked smarter in order to finish those two mm -hmm. things up. Yeah, and to do them well to the best of my ability. So no regrets, no.
That's very nice insight. Can you tell me how do you manage your work-life balance? How do I manage work-life balance? That's a really good question. I think not just for people in academia, <laughs> but I think for, for all of us who are working, mm-hmm. there's this combination of pressures. And I think whether we're male or female, and I think increasingly as men, um, particularly in our culture, become involved in childcare and in raising children with a hands-on stuff, it's going to be increasingly relevant to, to, to men as well to, to manage work-life balance. I think for me, I've always viewed it not as a destination, like now I've arrived, I've got work-life balance, but it's something, it's a way of life that we constantly need to tweak and review according to what stage of life we're in and according to what values we have at that stage in life. Mm-hmm. And so what work-life balance looks like for me now is very different to what it looked like when my children were a lot younger. So they're, they're all adults now. Their need of me mm-hmm. is different. I think in terms of being in an academic setting, I've brought with me, I guess, years of experience of working at trying to have a good enough balance. We're never going to mm-hmm. do it perfectly through having to balance to get to the point of doing a PhD involved me going back and doing another undergraduate degree in psychology part-time while I worked and had a family. So um, it required me to work hard at being present to my family (laughs) while doing my job well, because I was motivated to do that well, because it involved working with real people, Mm -hmm. to studying well enough to be able to get um, into a clinical master's degree and PhD. So I had to work smart and I had to, one of the strategies that I used to get balance for our family is I guess not trying to separate those two things out but to integrate where them where I could so and I guess an example of that when I was doing undergraduate research studies and while working and having young children was to you know read my textbook out loud mm-hmm. at night after the children were in bed record it mm-hmm. So I wasn't taking any information in, mm-hmm. but I audio recorded. Then we had a dog <laughs> who was a puppy in high needs who needed to be walked really early in the morning. So I would walk him and listen to that recording. Mm. So trying to find actively looking for those ways mm-hmm. that you could integrate two jobs, two birds with one stone. An example I think of um, in the PhD is when, because I was using one of my experiments involved using the Lena device to record the home language environments of um, children and of babies and infants and their mothers who some were impacted by maternal depression and anxiety and others weren't and look at how that affected their home language environment. So I would have to drive all over Sydney (laughs) to pick up these and drop off these Lena devices. I would um, try and use that time if I could if it was on the weekend with my family. So strategically work out those pickups and drop-offs around doing something with them. Yeah, being intentional about that and being mm-hmm. smart about that, I think, is one way of um, keeping work-life balance. Another way is to, I think, to value your own needs and in amongst all the other people's needs and to be kind to yourself. And I think because... A PhD project, like a lot of our research projects, are an investment long term. Mm. So they're not, um, you've got to be patient. 
you're doing a longitudinal study like I did for my PhD, you've got to be patient because for me it was 18 months of data collection before being able to analyse that data. And so I think we need to be intentional as well about celebrating the milestones and achievements mm -hmm. we make along the way and giving ourselves permission to do that and to revisit and ruminate on those achievements and the things that motivate us and I think finally not to take ourselves too seriously or our research too seriously which I think can be a, a temptation in academia for that to become our whole world mm -hmm researchers or for us to get a bit of an unbalanced view of perhaps how important that research actually is <laughs> to keep that I think sometimes having a family and other things helps give a different perspective mm -hmm. I think you know we all benefit from not taking ourselves too seriously in whatever work we're doing thank you for that can you tell me more about your research yeah so I mentioned my PhD I guess the both kinds of projects that I've been involved with, big ones, are to do with special population groups. So with my PhD project, I was working with mums in the area of depression and anxiety symptoms in the postnatal period and how that might impact on the amount that they spoke to their babies at home, the quality of their interactions they had with their babies, and um, ultimately how those things impacted on um, early language development. So it was a longitudinal project and had multiple components, including um, because I was doing a clinical master's um, program, I also did an intervention with a subset of mums, which was a video feedback intervention. So yeah, it was a wonderful project, followed mums and babies from six months to 18 months of age, really got to see those mums and babies um, over the 12 month period and watch them grow and develop relationships with them, visiting them in their own home initially and doing testing at home and in the in the baby lab at the Marx Institute and um, yeah found some really novel findings because particularly looking at the home language environment of babies infants where depression and anxiety might be experienced by mums hadn't been done before so I found really novel findings with regards to yeah the impact of depression particularly on the amount, not the amount that mums spoke around the babies, but the amount they spoke to the babies and also on the amount that babies were vocalising in their mum's presence, which was really interesting in terms of, I guess, potential for interventions for those dyads that might be impacted by depression and anxiety. And, um, yeah, just really seeing the benefit of... Um, Support and intervention for that subset of mums that I worked with it was a wonderful experience and, yeah, learning technology <laughs> that I never had exposure to do, eye tracking technology and, you know, habituation tasks mm -hmm. and all of those kind of things where you're really teasing out the finer aspects of a child's ability or the skills that they're using and developing even before they start to speech, speak in terms of recognising different sounds and words in continuous. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so that was a particularly um, rewarding project to be involved with and to have the opportunity to attend conferences and present mm -hmm. research and, you know, publish as a result of that's been such a great experience and really, I guess, fueled my interest in research. And I love what research can give in terms of that capacity to influence and to make change mm -hmm. 
potentially in terms of the impact of findings in real life, but also I guess that creative aspect of research which involves experimental design mm. and writing mm. <laughs> up your results is a real creative task as well as a scientific one. I think mm. in presenting and at conferences being able to present your findings in a way that tell a story and have the potential to be translated somewhere that can make a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah in the way people think and um, interventions and spark further treatment, uh, further treatment, further um, research, etc. Um, and in terms of my current project, interestingly, it is um, also with a special uh, population group at the other spectrum of life, other end of the spectrum. I'm working um, now with old, on a project with older adults who have been diagnosed with dementia. And this project is a collaboration with a um, industry funder of the research in a tech company in Japan who are really wanting to develop um, assistive technology to potentially uh, address the needs that people have in terms of um, cognitive decline, the impact of cognitive and physical decline on their functioning in life and also their carers. So this project is Yes, I've been in the position now. This is my third week, so I'm immersing myself in the literature and really am motivated by what I'm reading and I'm learning so much and will involve, for me, interviewing carers and interviewing people with dementia about what their needs are and and, and how they feel about the use of technology and where they feel that might be able to be helpful for them with the, hopefully, years down the track leading to the development of devices that will be able to assist (laughs) but not what industry thinks they need but industries really Mm -hmm. want to know from a research perspective one what their needs are and two I guess what what's likely to be used because I suspect there's a lot out there that's been developed that hasn't actually been Mm. used hasn't gone past the the paper I guess that's been or the Mm. general article that's been produced whereas I think that the exciting thing about this project is because industry is involved it will lead to the development of something Mm -hmm. very exciting yeah it's very nice I love how your research has important practical implications me too (laughs) I think we're all motivated by by different things but I think one of the one of and I think we all have different strengths as researchers that we bring into Mm -hmm our employment position and one of the things that I can bring is my decades of experience, I guess, as a clinician. Mm. So that that's what I bring into into this role and something that complements the other mm-hmm. people that are on the team who haven't had that experience but have had experience in a whole lot of other areas that mm-hmm. are more um, in terms of cognition and mm-hmm. the way the brain works and all and and technology and all of those other things. And I think that's one of the good things about working on a project in a team context is that you get to see how different people with different backgrounds and skills work together to I guess produce something that would mm-hmm. they be able to do on their own. Thanks. Can you tell me what are your hopes for your future research? My hopes are very simple. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to be employed <laughs> in in the sense that I would like to be able to continue to do mm-hmm. research, ideally to be able to do applied research and to develop to to really develop skills and um, quality research that makes a difference. And hopefully to build a, a base of, of papers, etc., and 
credibility that opens mm -hmm. up a way to draw funding in, in meaningful areas like the project that I'm doing at the moment. Mm -hmm. I don't think I, I feel limited at this stage by I need to work in this particular area. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but to be able to have the opportunity to continue to do research, which requires funding, <laughs> which requires employment, I will be really, really happy with. And if I can do that in combination with some kind of clinical work as well, mm -hmm. that would be my absolute ideal. Good luck with that. Thank you. Can you tell me what are the top issues you see women in academia face today? In some ways, I feel like um, a bit unqualified to or not qualified enough maybe to speak in, in, on behalf of academia because I feel like, you know, being right out the start of the career in academia, I feel, yeah, like I don't have a lot of experience behind me to draw from. And I feel at Marx we're quite fortunate at the Marx Institute in that I haven't experienced the kind of maybe liability or that sense of being of being female being a liability in an academic setting. I haven't experienced that so far, and particularly the Marx Institute. I think having, you know, a female who's a director mm -hmm. is perhaps part of that, that confidence that women are valued mm -hmm. in our setting. And I think at Western Sydney Uni more broadly, there is, I think they rate really highly in terms of the number mm -hmm. of women they have employed in academic positions. So I feel that's quite not the experience that is everywhere. Mm. So I may not be able to speak on behalf of um, beyond my, my limited experience, which has been quite positive. But I think one of the challenges that I've seen for, for, for women in, in academia is to have that balance of family life and, um, and particularly having children and how that might fit in with the demands of an academic role, which you know, can be quite high in terms of the hours of work required to produce good quality research that often go beyond the, the, you know, the average hours that people spend in a job. But also I'm aware of, of people in my life that work really hard and work beyond the hours that they're required to in other kinds of roles as well. So I don't know how that compares in academia with mm -hmm. other jobs, but I think they're the kind of issues I think particularly in, in positions that require continuity, like high-powered positions, business positions, or, you know, when people are working in a career where things build on each other, mm -hmm. there's always this fear that if I have a child, will that mm -hmm. leave behind in some way? Or will I be disadvantaged in my reaching my career goals if I have to take 12 months out? You know, how mm -hmm. will that on my research you know will that slow me down will that disadvantage me will that disadvantage me in the you know seeking work will people look at me as a young female and wonder if I'm going to have a baby at some point obviously mm -hmm. my experience right now but I can see those kind of issues impacting on I guess maybe the freedoms or decisions that are made by males in the same setting that may not have to agonise over those decisions or wonder whether now's the right time to have a baby mm -hmm. or not. So I think that's a real challenge. And I think, as I said, it faces women beyond academia. I am working with someone at the moment now that I really respect who has some um, little children. And one of the advantages, it's kind of like a blessing and a liability. Academia, you can work anytime mm -hmm. in the you know, you don't have to be at a place. Like my daughter is a pastry chef apprentice. She has to be at work mm -hmm. by six o'clock and often working overtime. Mm -hmm. to, you know, we know that academia, 
it's all ours. And so the advantage of that is that as a parent, you can work around that and maybe be spending more time with your children in the days and working at night, for example. So the liability of it is that you may not have the luxury of coming home and going full stop with work, mm-hmm. 100%, turn off, work hat off now, mm-hmm. no home hat. But in my own experience, I've, I've, and I alluded to this earlier, I feel like integration of those two things is possible that we don't necessarily need to relax by taking the work hat off we can take it off for a couple of hours and then put it on again for a couple of hours and I don't know that that's that we haven't achieved that work-life balance less if we do that versus I only work in the office Mm -hmm. work at home and I think COVID's taught us perhaps how to do that a bit better because Mm -hmm. we've been to whatever so I think there's real scope for women not to be a disadvantaged either Mm -hmm. by integrating those two roles in a way that works for them and their family and it's going to be different for everybody thank you for that can you tell me what is the one piece of advice you would give to somebody thinking about academia or to somebody just starting out in academia I'd say just keep turning up. <laughs> that was kind of my mantra for when, you know, it was a very demanding degree, that the two degrees together, just keep showing up. Yeah, you will keep progressing and going forward if you show up. If you don't show up, you're not going to. Very simple advice, but I think, you know, sometimes we can balk at the pressures or try and take time out when we don't really need it. I think we just need to keep showing up. And even if we just do a little bit that day and we don't achieve what we want to, and I think alongside that is not being frightened to let go of perfectionism because we can do a really good job without it being a perfect job. So don't give up. There's going to be obstacles along the way in your personal life. There's going to be obstacles in in research, but it doesn't mean... (laughs) things are derailed you can keep going pick up learn from your mistakes if we did everything perfectly we wouldn't learn basically we learn most from our mistakes so there's a lot of room for things to not go according to plan in research but we just keep turning up and we keep learning from and tweaking it and we will get there and I would apply that even to the choice of a research topic sometimes I think we can get stuck in having everything perfect in terms of this is what I always wanted to do or this is, I can't do this project because it doesn't have this component, this component, this component. I think you start with what you're given and what opportunities are there and they can open the door to further opportunities. So it doesn't have to be, your PhD doesn't have to be perfect. It has to be um, good enough, good enough research to, to, to do well and letting go of perfectionism. I think, you know, what I learned by doing two very intense degrees together is that I didn't have the luxury for perfectionism. <laughs> I had to turn up to clinic days without necessarily, you know, being able to plan every mm-hmm. second of every session and found that we could have really good quality times as a therapist and a client without perfectionism coming into play. And so learning to trust yourself and your judgment. But having said that, when it comes to choosing research topics or areas, I'd really encourage somebody coming into academia to find a topic 
that really interests them because it is a long haul. And I think if you're, if you're interested in the research and it motivates you, then that's partly what keeps you going when things get a little bit hard. I think they're the most important things. And to surround yourself with um, yeah, people who are on the same team as you, who mm-hmm. you know, can be part of your cheer squad <laughs> when you get to the you know through through hard spots or when you really need cheering to get over the line but that you in turn are committed to being part of someone else's cheer squad as they're whether it's at the level of a PhD student or or other researchers you know that we're really supporting one another and not competing against each other thank you so much for great advice thank you so much for being my guest today it was a pleasure It was a pleasure to be um, your guest, Irina. Thank you. Good luck with your research. You too. That's all for today's episode. Thank you for listening.